All right, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn me to Philippians chapter 3, and uh, we are working our way through the book of Philippians, kind of section by section, which uh, is our custom. Uh, when I was in college, I had a philosophy professor who uh, took it upon himself to challenge uh, sort of every one of our uh, firmly held beliefs. And so if he found out that there was something that we really had a strong conviction we had, then he would kind of needle and provoke, and he would badger us as to why we believed what we believed. Now, on one level, I'm grateful for this in that it did help us, I think, as students kind of uh, get to a point where we were able to defend what we believed, so that was good. Um, I was also grateful because that back and forth made the class interesting, as opposed to some classes where I just sat there and thought about Janine the whole time. Um, I still do that even in my doctoral classes uh, sometimes. So, but it made it interesting, and it was a good back and forth. But one of the things that really annoyed me was uh, the professor's reluctance to ever really land anywhere on anything. And so everything, he just kind of kept up in the air. It was very noncommittal. And, and, you know, there were times that I was frustrated by that. I remember one particular day I was annoyed by his noncommittal ways. And so I started to turn the questions back around him and needle him and badger him and and he stopped right in the middle of the class and looked at me with daggers and he said, John, he said, you strike me as a person who's going to struggle your whole life with dissonance. Now, as a college student, I had no idea what that was, so I wasn't sure if I should be bothered by that or not. Uh, but dissonance is a musical term that refers to musical notes or styles that seem to be impossible to harmonize. You might think of hip-hop and bluegrass. I don't know if anybody's ever tried to unite those two genres of music. So dissonance started as a musical term, but now it actually applies more broadly. If you look in the fields of psychology or the field of philosophy, dissonance refers to concepts, beliefs, or values that seem to be contradictory and yet somehow are able to be harmonized. I guess a one-word definition for dissonance might be tension. Uh, we're working our way through a letter written in 62 A.D., roughly by the Apostle Paul, to a group of uh, Christians who really, a very unlikely group of Christians, these were, these were mostly demobilized Roman veterans who lived in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was not in Rome, it wasn't anywhere in Italy, um, it was in Greece, but it was a Roman colony. And so Paul writes to these demobilized Roman veterans who had had their whole lives, their greatest loyalty to the Roman emperor. And he says, actually, your true loyalty should be to this Jewish Messiah. Now, think about that for a second. Think about how difficult that would be to receive. Paul is asking these, uh, again, these retired Roman soldiers to transfer their loyalty from the Roman emperor to this crucified Jew who was actually killed by Rome, the very empire to which these soldiers gave their lives. So you think you're a Roman soldier and, and, and you're well known for your, your tenure, your service, you've been on multiple tours, you're known for your bravery and your loyalty, and here is this leader, this spiritual leader, who's telling you that your loyalty ought to be instead to Jesus. Again, the, this man that your government crucified. So, you can see the tension building. Most of these folks in Philippi were fairly new believers. Uh, the church has only been around around 12 years when Paul writes it. So many of these believers 
have been Christians for less than 10 years, and you see the tension building, which is nothing new. You know, you read the Bible, we come across all kinds of tension. In fact, as we discussed before, the Christian life is a life filled with tension. We are set free from sin, we're told, and yet our personal experience tells us we continue to yield to sin. We are saints, yet sinners. We have peace, and yet we are to strive for peace. We are of great worth, and yet we are wretched. Beautiful song that Pastor Chris and Meg sing on occasion that we sing congregationally, which says, These two wonders here I must confess, my worth and my unworthiness. You can see the tension there. Uh, we're told uh, by the writer of Hebrews that we've been given rest, and yet we are to labor to enter that rest. We're forgiven, and yet we're instructed to confess our sin. We're a new creation, yet we battle the old self. So these are, these are what we might call dissonant concepts. This is tension. And I know for some of us, you know, maybe a, a, maybe a, a freer personality, we say, look, I'm not bothered by the tension. It's, it's okay, I can live with that. But there are other people who are maybe more paralyzed by analysis, and they say, no, I've got to figure out like, how does this all fit together? I have to figure out how this works. And then we, be, we encounter even greater trouble when we get to the book of Philippians that we've been studying, which I believe contains more tension than any other New Testament book. Paul says about Jesus, he is fully God in every way. And yet, he's fully human also. So we say, but, but how does that work? How can he be fully God and at the same time fully human? Paul goes on to say that in his letter that for those who believe on Jesus, they have been made right with God and nothing they do or don't do will change that. Ours is the righteousness of God that comes by faith, not by obedience to the law. And yet, Paul says, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We say, like, how does that work? Paul brutally condemns those religious leaders who make the gospel about what we're supposed to do rather than what God has done for us in Christ. And yet this same Paul constantly talks about all the stuff he continues to do. How do we reconcile these things? And I guess to our point this morning, how do we cease from striving while at the same time working hard at our salvation? How do we run the race while still resting in Christ. That's what we're going to focus our attention this morning. We'll be in uh, verses 12 through 16, a very short section of uh, Philippians 3. Let me begin by reading verses 12 through 14. Here reads the word of the Lord. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, Paul says, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So one of the points that I made a couple of weeks ago was that it will actually be our vulnerability, our, our vulnerability that actually encourages other Christians and gains a listening ear to the watching world. And I know that a couple of you really struggle with that. You know, what, what is this about, you know, being vulnerable, being open about my sinfulness and so on. Now, and I made that point, and we're going to see in just a moment how Paul, you know, he actually confirms that, that idea. But I do want to say that it's not our vulnerability that saves anyone. It's the power of the gospel. 
But when we are open about our failures, open about our sin tendencies, what we do is we put a spotlight on the grace and the power and the mercy of God, His power in our weakness. And so what Paul seems to do here right away, in three different ways, he says there's something that he has not obtained, but he still presses on toward it. It doesn't tell us what it is. The object of the verb is left unstated. But the antecedent seems to be the phrase in verse 11, becoming like him in his death. That is to say, in other words, Paul is talking about being conformed into the image of Christ. He said, I'm not, I'm not yet fully conformed into the image of Christ, but I'm pressing on toward that. I'm not perfect, he says in verse 12. I am decidedly imperfect, but I strive toward holiness, being more like Christ. I'm not Christ-like at the moment in my thoughts, my motives, my actions. And of course, as Christians, we won't reach perfection in this life. Perfection is actually a part of the life to come. But it doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we simply revel hopelessly in our imperfections. It doesn't mean we just throw in the towel and say, well, I'm never going to grow, I'm never going to progress in my faith, so why bother? Have you ever met anyone who kind of seems to fixate on his or her failures? I remember hearing a friend of mine teach a seminar on evangelism and did a terrific job. And I remember this one phrase that, that always stuck out to me. He said, in sharing your faith, he said, don't minimize the dark days. In other words, he said, when you're sharing your faith, he said, don't skip over what Jesus has saved you from. Your sinful past, your, your imperfections, your rebellion, your self-reliance, all of those things. But then what he did is he went on to say, but don't spend all your time. You know, you've probably heard these testimonies where the person just goes on about all the people that they slept with and all the drugs they took and all the things they did. And then maybe there's one, one little sliver at the end to talk about God's miraculous work. Well, there is, again, there's tension there as we talked about. We don't want to, we don't want to minimize what God has saved us from. But we want to celebrate the work of God in our lives. Confessing our sin tendencies and imperfections, again, doesn't mean that we give up on our pursuit of holiness. Paul also says this passage multiple times, I press on, I strive. Why? And here's the pivotal phrase in this section. The pivotal phrase is in verse 12, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This whole section turns on that phrase. There's actually a play on words here in the Greek language that we don't really see in the English, but I want to point it out to you, um, and hopefully it will help. Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained, so if you make notes in your Bible, put a little mark by the word obtained. I've obtained this or already imperfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has, and to put another mark by this phrase, made me his own. So the... the the word, the Greek word translated obtained and also made me his own. It's the same Greek word as from the word lambano, or in this one case, kata lambano. And what it means is seized or captured. This is the reference here. This is what Paul's uh, talking about here. In fact, the, it literally reads, verse 12 literally reads, I press forward to capture it, Christ's likeness, because Christ has captured me. I don't know if you've ever been captured. I doubt that that's an experience that very many people here have shared, but um, what it means to be captured is, it means someone has taken you when you were least expected. It means that someone has powerfully seized you and brought you into their possession, into their domain. 
when actually you wanted to go in a different direction. Now, that's typically not a good thing, is it? It's typically not a good thing to be captured, to be seized. But in this case, it is. Uh, one New Testament scholar and linguist, David Garland, actually prefers the word abducted here. He says, here's what he writes, the image of being abducted by Christ, referring to Christ's prior action, makes possible attaining the goal. Otherwise, one's efforts become a mere flailing away at the air. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning, our first point. The true believer works from, not for, a secure position in Christ. The true believer works from, not for, a secure position in Christ. You say, well, it's just a difference of a preposition. It is, but it actually makes all the difference in the world. What happens is, when God, what God does in salvation is, He chooses someone before that person is even born. And he says, he belongs to me. She belongs to me. And at a moment in that person's life, God works in a supernatural way. Jesus calls it the new birth. Theologians refer to it as regeneration. God works in a supernatural way to bring that person to saving faith. He or she is made alive spiritually. So God takes someone who is physically alive, of course, but spiritually dead, and he works again. He overwhelms them with his love, with his kindness and his power, and he brings them to a place of repentance and faith. So it's entirely work of God. It's not because someone chooses God. It's not because someone invites Jesus into their hearts. It's because God has worked in, by his sovereign grace to bring someone to saving faith. If you put your faith in Jesus, God has brought you to that place and he will not let you go. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you are loved by God. Your forgiveness is final. As someone has said, the absolution is absolute. You are completely and totally forgiven. You are a child of God, and there's nothing that you can do or anyone else can do to separate you from His love. God has captured you. God has seized you. And He will not let you go. I love C.S. Lewis's writings. I love his testimony. Lewis exemplified and explained what happened in salvation uh, beautifully. C.S. Lewis was actually an atheist all through his 20s. And when he was 32, the Spirit of God worked in such a miraculous way to bring him to saving faith. In his book, Surprised by Joy, Lewis explains it this way. He says, and I just love this, he says, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had last come upon me. God brought me in, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. But the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Now, this is the same thing happened to the Apostle Paul. He wasn't in, in a room in, in England, but he was on a dusty road in the Middle East he actually hated Jesus. There was nobody who hated Jesus more than Paul. And Paul was actually actively involved in persecuting the followers of Jesus. And the risen Christ appeared to him in a blinding light. And he captured the heart and the affections of Paul. He made Paul a believer. And Paul then would go on to become, of course, the world's greatest missionary. This is because God seized him. God captured him. 
God actually did what Paul is describing in verse 12. For those that God captures in Christ, to use Paul's metaphor, they are never released. Only ironically, for the first time in their lives, they experience true freedom. This was Paul's confidence and his reasoning for striving and working and praying and wrestling. It's all anchored in the fact that he was already secure in Christ. He wasn't working to gain security. He wasn't working to gain God's approval. He was already approved by God in Christ. And that's what compelled him to struggle and strive. So notice that even though he's secure in Christ, he's not complacent. He's not apathetic. The good news of Jesus' forgiveness has not killed his motivation, but in fact, it has deepened his motivation. New Testament scholar Dennis Johnson writes, To be sure, Paul had abandoned the life of striving and achieving that characterized his life before Christ. Nevertheless, as he rested in a righteousness not his own, the surpassing result was that his assurance became a stimulant, not a sedative, to his passion to follow God's will and further God's glory. And I dare say the same is true for us. It will be our recognition that we are secure in Christ, that we have everything we need in Christ. It won't kill our motivation to serve and obey Him and worship. In fact, it will light a fire to that motivation. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says he presses on. So what does that mean? Well, what he's talking about there is, by pressing on, is to move continually and undistractedly toward a fixed goal. This is what he's talking about. He is moving continually toward a fixed goal. And he's doing it in a way that he's undistracted by. And I'll be honest with you, this is where I struggle. He's undistracted by political division, national unrest, physical fatigue, sickness, weakness, his own limitations. He's actually in prison as he writes this. He's undistracted by those things. And instead, this is where, remember last week I said he usually uses athletic imagery. Last week he was banking imagery. He goes back to the athletic imagery. He says, like a marathoner who refuses to look back at the ground he's already covered. Paul will remain focused on what's ahead. The last time I played golf, a few weeks ago, I was in a golf cart with a guy in our church, and um, we just finished up, as far as I recall, it was the 12th hole. We're, we're approaching the 13th hole, and we saw a man walking ahead of us with, I guess what you would call a robot, carrying his clubs. And so this guy's walking, walking, he's got nothing in his hands that we can see, no clubs, no, no devices, he's just walking ahead, and about three feet behind him was this robot carrying his clubs right behind, you know, right behind him. And so the man I was playing golf with, he's an engineer, and naturally, and um, he explained to me that that technology was called a monopulse transmitter with a dual antenna. This is something we never studied in seminary, I promise you. We never talked any about monopulse transmitters. But what was fascinating was that wherever this guy would go, wherever he would walk, this robot was right behind him. He walked around a tree, the robot went right around a tree. The robot was absolutely fixated on this guy ahead of him. This is the same sort of fixation that Paul's talking about. He's not talking about someone carrying his golf clubs. Golf wasn't invented until about 1,500 years later in Scotland. What he's talking about is his 
focus on the goal. That's what he says, the goal. Now, what is the goal? He tells us in verse 14. It is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. More specifically, it is the complete knowledge of Jesus. Knowing Him fully in a way that is uncumbered by sin and being completely conformed into the image of Christ. Here's another example of that tension we talked about. The Bible tells us that now we know Christ, and yet His love actually transcends our knowing. It's beyond our knowledge. So, what is it? Now we're told that we know Jesus, but it is a knowledge that is distorted by sin. Now we see the Apostle Paul says, now we can see, but we see as through a glass darkly. In other words, our vision is impaired. But when we are called upward by Jesus, we will be with Him. We too will have glorified bodies and we will know Jesus fully. Right now, our bodies are decaying. Our bodies are growing weaker. I'm eight months from 50. There are a lot of things I used to be able to do I can't do. We see this. And now, I'm sure that Molly Weiss, who's 103, says, well, you're just a kid. What do you know? But when our bodies are decaying, we're getting older, we're getting weaker. And, and Paul understands this, of course. Right now, our eyes are dimmed. Our vision is blurred because of sin. But one day, we will forever be with Jesus. Paul tells us in verses 20 and 21. We're going to get to this next week, but I want to read it so you see how this all fits together. Paul says in verses 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven. Listen to what he says. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. A beautiful, this is a beautiful reality that Paul is focused on. He's not looking behind him. What he's talking about there, he's, he's neither looking at his successes or his failures. Now, he listed his successes and achievements last, the passage you looked at last week. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Right? I, I, as to the law, blameless. As to the understanding the law, Pharisee. Circumcised, yeah, on the right day, the eighth day. But he says, I'm not looking at all those achievements. Nor am I looking back at my failures. Some people... Some people spend their whole lives, I think, dwelling on their past and focusing on their past, trying to make sense of it, analyzing it, scrutinizing it, justifying whatever it is. They're constantly looking at the past. Why? Maybe it's something they did. Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Or maybe it's something that was done to them. Why did this person do? Why did he do this to me? Why would she do that to me? Others spend much of their time trying to hide their past, going to great lengths to hide their past from their friends, their family, sometimes even their own spouse. And all of those efforts simply lead to exhaustion. Why? Because they keep the past central. If you're, if you're always thinking about the past, why you did something, why something was done to you, or why something happened, then the past is actually central in your thinking. The past becomes predominant in your thinking. And Paul says, no, the past is gone. I'm not paying any attention to it. Either what the good things that happened, the bad things that happened. He says, don't let the past consume you. The future is ahead. The prize is secure. But, of course, we still need to run toward it. God has won the victory, but we're still embroiled in the race. We're living in the in-between as we await the return of Jesus. And here's what he wants the Philippians and us to see. It's our second point. 
We live in the already but not yet. God has a better plan for the world and is leading us there. As Christians, we have a foot in two worlds, you might say, in the already and the not yet. The already of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, and the not yet of his return and our resurrection. And of course, as we live in the in-between, we, we experience tension. We see all the things that are going on around us. We see disease, we see illness, of course, we see the spread of COVID, we see people that are getting sick, we see people dying from a variety of things, we see hatred, we see marriages broken, we see all kinds of things. But we also see the promise of hope, God's work in our lives. We see God restoring marriages. We see God bringing people to repentance. We see God uh, bridging friendships that were formerly estranged. Everywhere we look, not only do we see heartbreak and despair, but we see God's redemptive work. We see God at work. And Paul says, we're living in the, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm striving toward it as I await the return of Christ. This is the goal that Paul is running towards, fully knowing Jesus. The return of the Savior who will make all things right in this broken and sin-cursed world. At a previous church that I served, I had a friend, um, his name was Hal, he was an older gentleman, um, but I probably don't have to tell you that because you don't know anybody young named Hal, um, but Hal was in his late 70s, and, uh, and Hal worked at PowerPoint at our church, so every single Sunday, both services, he was there and he worked the PowerPoint slides without fail, he was totally reliable, and he was always there, and he loved the church. Well, what, he was retired, you know, he was late 70s, so what he would do during the week is he would listen to all kinds of preaching on the radio and on television, and he would write down any phrases that he didn't like, and then he would bring them to me for some reason, for, for my amusement, I guess, and he would do it like two minutes before the service started, um, and he would get my take on that. And so every week he would bring uh, his, his, these phrases from somebody who preached on the radio that really bothered him, and there was one phrase that, that Hal would he brought to me a couple times, he really, really, he was so annoyed by it, and it was this phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. One time, Hal brought that, to, he brought a comic. It's a, I don't know, I couldn't find it online, but it's a comic strip that had one of the, uh, a martyr of the faith being martyred, being burned at the stake, with the flames already encroaching upon his feet, and the caption said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he said, look, like, how do we say that to people? We don't know what God has in store for them. And I said, okay, well, wait a second. This guy was, you know, he tended to be a little harshly critical. And I said, okay, let's, let's zoom out a little bit. Okay, let's look at this. Let's look at this big picture, okay? I said, I understand why you're frustrated, and, and, and I love the way you bring these things to me ten minutes, two seconds before I preach. But he said, but I said, look, I, I want you to understand. Look, look at this. If we look at this from the big picture standpoint, we can say that God does have a wonderful plan for those who trust him. Now, it may be, it may involve, will involve suffering, it may involve persecution, it may even involve a, an untimely death. But for all those who are in Christ, the end result is life with Jesus, which is the greatest prize. The goal is the winner's prize that awaits us at the end of the race because God has already secured the victory. Now, you say, I don't know. I mean, this is kind of an odd way of thinking. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. 
And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, for those of you who are young in your marriages, it's typically not a good approach to say, look, I'm right, the reason you disagree is because you're immature and wrong, but don't worry, God is going to reveal to you that I'm right, and he's going to show you that you're wrong. That's not usually the best way to go about it, but this is what Paul does. He says to them, he said, the way that I think, and the way that I'm telling you to think, is actually the way that mature people think, and when you get to a place of maturity, you'll think like I do. Now, Paul's writing under this inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What he puts down on parchment is exactly what God wants him to write. And what he says is, ultimately, what we think matters. And, in fact, the way that we think will direct the way that we live. But more, more specifically, here's what he's saying. This is our third point. Running while resting, there's that tension, involves adopting a mindset continually shaped by the gospel of grace. Now, it's easy for us to miss this passage, and I, and I understand that one of, the, one of the beauties and values of, of expositional preaching is you get to see it all in the context and how it all fits together, and, and the preacher doesn't deter, determine the agenda you know, for the sermon for the week, but the Holy Spirit does. But of course, one of the negatives of breaking those sections down is these letters are meant to be read and heard all at once in one sitting. So, it's important that we, that we understand that you know, how this passage relates to the big picture. And, and it's easy to miss what this particular section is about. It's about the power of God's grace in our sanctification. The Apostle Paul says, I press on. I run to win the prize. But then he says, look, the prize has already been won for me. He says, I work, but I work because God works in me. I run for victory, but the victory has already been won. People sometimes fear and I've heard this, I don't know how many times over the years, people say, yeah, but if you really, if you emphasize God's grace, if you talk about the love of God, if you, talk, if you let people know that, that God's love for them is steadfast and, and immovable and secure, and, and, and even if they sin, God still loves them, won't that lead to apathy? I mean, won't that lead to, to indifference? Won't that lead to, to complacency? And the answer is, no, it never ever, ever works that way. Unconditional love is the only thing that can soften a hard heart and move anyone to repentance and obedience. I mean, think about it this way. When are you most inclined to pursue someone? When, are you, when do you most desire to please someone? When are you most intent on making sacrifices for someone else? Is it not when you know that you are loved unconditionally and that nothing will ever change that. And what we're talking about here is the power of living by grace versus living by what I'm going to call ungrace. And there's a huge distinction here. Uh, Paul knew that by God's sovereign grace, he had been completely and permanently captured when he was lost, dead, and hellbound. It had nothing to do with Paul. It was all by grace. And when a person grasped that, it absolutely radically changes the way they live. Now, now, let me show you how this works. Let's talk about grace for a minute. Grace is an undeserved gift. So, so grace is God saying, I'm going to give you something you can never secure on your own, and yet something you desperately need. Grace is 
unconditional love. So when God makes us His own, it's not as though He says, you know, I love you today, but yesterday, you don't know how I felt about you. No, it's unconditional love. It's unmerited favor. That is, God saying, I am I'm showing you my favor. Not because you've merited or earned it, but because I'm a gracious God. Grace is performance-free acceptance. I accept you, and it's not based on how you perform day to day. Now, let's look at ungrace. Ungrace is you get what you deserve. So, again, an undeserved gift, ungrace is you better earn it. Ungrace is conditional love. So, I will love you as long as you meet my stipulations. Grace is merited favor. I will show you my favor, but you have to show me that you deserve it. And grace, ungrace, is performance-based acceptance. So living by grace, which the Apostle Paul did, has the power to renew, restore, and empower. Living by ungrace has devastating consequences. We see it in our relationships, we see it in our friendships, we see it in our parenting, we see it in our marriages. Think about our friendships. Now some people, you may have a friend, and, and, and conditionality is the essence of your friendship. In other words, you know that this is the way that it works. You don't invite her to something, you're not going to get invited. You left her text unread, she's going to leave your text unread. You say something sharp to her, you've got to brace yourself because you're going to get something sharp in return. This is a friendship based on ungrace. right? And the relationships like that are, are anything but rewarding. They're absolutely draining. It's the same way in our parenting. It, it, when our kids believe that, that we love them, if they get good grades, if they don't act up in school, if they control their temper, if they're not a smart aleck, if they're respectful, they say yes, ma'am, And pretty soon, pretty soon they're actually going to lose interest in what we're saying to them. And when they do grow up and they get older, they're not coming back except holidays every once in a while. But if they understand that we love them regardless of their grades, and I'm not, if you're a student here, I'm not telling you to get bad grades, okay? Get, get good grades, you know, or else I won't love you. Uh, no, get good grades, that's good, right? But if they understand that, that we only love them if they get good grades, you know, if they're respectful, whatever, they're not going to return. But if they understand we love them even in spite of all of those things, you're going to develop a friendship and a relationship where they're going to want to return. It's the same way in our marriage. marriage. I, I see this all the time. I see, the, I see the, the, the stubborn tendency in my own heart. It's this tit-for-tat mentality. You do this for me, and I'll do this for you. I'll fix this thing around the house. This is purely hypothetical because I can't fix anything. But I'll fix this thing around the house, but it does come with expectations. Or you said something mean to me, and so I'm going to say something mean to you. You withheld forgiveness from me, so I'm going to withhold forgiveness from you. When marriages get to that point of ungrace, it takes a miracle of God to restore them. Now, God does those miracles, and, and so much of my marriage counseling involves helping husbands and wives see all the ways they've embraced ungrace as a way of dealing with each other. But the most powerful consequence of ungrace comes in our relationship with God. When we believe that God will love us and hold on to us if we do certain things right, 
if we obey Him fully, if we spend the right amount of time in prayer, if we resist temptation, if we believe God will love us, if, then we live with fear and uncertainty. And eventually, get this, eventually, we give up. We give up. Because we say, I, I can't do this. I can't be perfect. I'm not perfect. Why do I try to earn God's love when I know I'll only fail again? But the beautiful thing is, that's not how God works, actually. From beginning to end, our relationship with God is by grace alone. Praise God that He actually doesn't give us what we deserve. Because that would be a miserable thing. We deserve God's punishment. And yet, He gives us His forgiveness. We deserve God's wrath. And yet, He gives us His love. We deserve, actually, to be written off. For God to say, okay, you want to go your own way? As the psalm says, you want to go your own way? Fine, I'll let you go your own way. But instead, He sends His Son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised to new life for us. Praise God He doesn't give us what we deserve. We deserve a debtor's prison, to be always and forever in debt, with a debt we cannot repay. But God gives us instead a clean credit history. We deserve, if I can paraphrase Philip Yancey, we deserve, a, we deserve stern lectures and crawl-on-your-knees repentance. But instead, we get a feast, a banquet prepared for us with a, with a very special seat at the table. We deserve to be let go because of our unfaithfulness, but God keeps us and holds us fast to Himself because He is faithful. And when we understand this, yes, it's a supernatural thing. That is, that, that it's understanding is enabled by the Spirit. But when we understand this the way Paul did, that God's love for us is unchanging because God Himself is faithful, then we will live with joy, a burning desire to please the One who loved us so, and a persevering faith. It's like the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He said, when I thought God to be hard and uncaring, I found it easy to disobey. But when I realized the death of the one who loved me so, I thought, why would I sin against the person who loves me this way? It's an understanding of who God is, who we are to Him because of His grace and His love. But it is counterintuitive doesn't make sense to us. This is why Paul would encourage his readers to think this way with God's help. Verse 16, to hold true to what we have attained. In other words, to hold fast to the gospel and to allow it to continually shape our thinking. And now you see how all this, again, continues to fit together so beautifully, this whole letter, 